This is Eve Lazarus, and you're listening to Cold Case Canada, the Missing Jack family out of Prince George. Cold Case Canada is an independently produced true crime podcast hosted by Eve Lazarus, a reporter and author based in Vancouver, British Columbia. This episode is brought to you by our sponsor, Forbidden Vancouver Walking Tours. In 2012, for the third year in a row, Prince George claimed the number one spot on Maclean's magazine's list of the most dangerous cities in Canada. Prince George topped the list due to its gang wars, drug abuse, murder rate, and been home to the country's youngest convicted serial killer, a good-looking, athletic and popular young man who murdered three women and a 15-year-old girl. That a killer preyed on vulnerable Indigenous women in Prince George is unfortunately no surprise. That he was caught and convicted, though, was. In the years since, Prince George has dropped in the Maclean's rankings, though it still places among the top 20 most violent cities in the country. While the population of Prince George is less than 100,000, it is by far the biggest city in northern BC and attracts people looking for work, studying at the University of Northern British Columbia and trying to step out of poverty to seek the type of medical, educational or financial services not available in smaller communities. It is also the meeting place for two notorious highways. The 724-kilometre stretch of Highway 16 that cuts through resource towns and wilderness between Prince Rupert and Prince George and is known around the world as the Highway of Tears. And there's Highway 97, which runs north from the Yukon to Dawson Creek, then southwest through the Okanagan to the US border. The two highways bisect the province and meet at Prince George, which is located on the Clayty Tanay First Nation. The first evidence that you're travelling down a dangerous stretch of asphalt are the billboards at Dot Highway 16. There are messages such as girls don't hitchhike on the Highway of Tears. And hitchhiking, is it worth the risk? Some have photos of missing women and girls. There's Mackie Basil, 27. She disappeared in 2013. Tamara Chipman, 22, has been missing since 2005. Cecilia Nicole, 15, missing in 1989, and her cousin Delphine, 16, who vanished the following year. These young women are not hitchhiking for the hell of it. They come from some of the poorest areas of Canada that are cursed with high unemployment. This means they don't have money for a car, and there is very little public transit, if any, to get them where they need to be. These long stretches of highway are a predator's hunting ground. It's too easy for a trucker, a local or a tourist to pick up a young woman at one end of the highway, rape, murder, then dump her in the forest or on an old logging road and drive away. Sometimes their bodies are found, but often they are not. Indigenous people who live in the Prince George area have a deep distrust of law enforcement. And you don't have to go very far back to find out exactly why. Between 1992 and 2001, 
David William Ramsay was a provincial court judge working out of Prince George who used his courtroom to pick his victims and then stalk them on the streets. After years of acting with impunity to rape and beat up children as young as 12, Ramsay eventually pled guilty to sexual assault, causing bodily harm, breach of trust and three counts of buying sex from a person under 18. Four young women were brave enough to come forward and report the abuse. How many dozens were too afraid? This case is shocking, not only because of Ramsay's lofty position in the community, but for the length of time his crimes continued, and for the very real possibility that as many as 10 RCMP officers were involved in sexually exploiting and abusing dozens of girls. Ramsay was married and had four children. He would pick up Indigenous girls, take them to the woods outside of town, force them to perform degrading and often violent sex acts. His position gave him access to their legal files. He knew their vulnerabilities, limited education and trauma-filled histories. Many of these children were dealing with mental health and addiction issues and he used all this information to exploit them. He paid a 12-year-old $80 for oral sex and intercourse and then sat in judgment of her in court three months later. Completely aware of her horrific past, he picked her up again when she was 13. When this child reached for a condom, he slammed her head into the dashboard. When she tried to escape, he slapped her across the face, raped her and told her no one would believe her word over his. She had no reason to doubt him. Then he threw her out of his car and left her to hitchhike back to town. Ramsay picked up another girl several times, starting when she was 14. He was well aware of her fragile mental state because she'd appeared before him in court. He threatened to have her killed if she told anyone. After all this came out in 2002, Ramsay tried to kill himself by drinking antifreeze and pesticides mixed with orange juice. His wife found him and he went to jail, where he died from cancer six years later at the age of 65. In 2004, just as the case against Ramsey was getting underway, two Prince George RCMP officers were investigated by a special task force for sexual exploitation and breach of trust. They paid Indigenous girls for sex. One of the Mounties was accused of buying sex from five different teenagers between 1993 and 2001, and beating up at least one of them. He spent the next 17 years on paid leave. As far as I know, he still is. He was never cleared, but he wasn't convicted of anything either. His defence lawyer argued that the Mounties had taken too long to make a case against one of their own. The Mounties' former partner, who was stationed in Prince George between 1991 and 2004, was investigated for soliciting sex with underage girls. He eventually went back to work at the Kamloops detachment. Both officers later sued the department. No outside inquiries were made into any of these allegations. We'll be back after this short message from our sponsor. On Forbidden Vancouver's Lost Souls of Gastown walking tour, you'll step inside a world of murder and revenge. There's a retelling of Victorian Gastown's earliest stories with tales of the Great Fire, 
smallpox outbreaks and the unsolved murder of John Bray. The experience is led by one of Forbidden Vancouver's cast of professional theatre actors who leads you through the city's oldest back streets and alleyways to a dramatic finale in the heart of Gastown. I took this walking tour and it sure sent a shiver down my spine. Book tickets at ForbiddenVancouver.com and save 15% when you use the code COLDCASE. On August 1st, 1989, 26-year-old Ronnie Jack was at the First Leader pub, a sketchy drinking hole about four blocks from his home. While there, he got talking to a bearded white man in his late 30s who wore a red checkered work shirt, a black cap, faded blue jeans, a blue jacket, and work boots with leather fringes over the toes. He had brownish red hair and at over six feet tall, towered over Ronnie. Ronnie, his 26-year-old partner, Doreen, and their two boys, Russell, aged nine, and Ryan, aged four, had moved to Prince George the previous year, looking to find stable work and a better life. About three months earlier, Ronnie had told his mother, Mabel, that he owed someone money. Mabel gave him some money, and Ronnie said that Doreen was playing bingo, hoping to win enough money to pay the rest of the debt off. They were scraping by on social assistance, so when the man in the pub offered them well-paid, short-term jobs, Ronnie jumped at the opportunity. The catch was that since they didn't own a car, they'd have to leave with a man that same night. Ronnie went home to gather up his family. He called his brother in Burns Lake to see if he could take care of his kids while Ronnie and Doreen were away. But his brother told him that he couldn't. A few hours later, Ronnie called his mother and told her that they'd be working at a logging camp about 60 kilometres west of Prince George. He would be bucking logs and Doreen would work as a cook's helper in the camp kitchen. There was a daycare at the logging camp, he said, so the kids would go with them. They would be gone about 10 days, he said, back well before Russell started school that September. By that time, it was around 1.30 in the morning. What worried Mabel, though, was that Ronnie finished the conversation by saying, if I don't come back, come and look for me. Doreen's cousin had stopped by to visit that night, and he left shortly after Ronnie made the call to his mother. He would later give a description to the RCMP of the man who hired them. Doreen's sister, Lorraine, lived across the parking lot from them, and she would tell the police that at some point that night, she had opened her living room blinds and seen a dark-coloured four-wheel drive pickup truck parked outside her sister's apartment. When the ten days came and went, and she still hadn't heard from Ronnie, Mabel Jack began to feel uneasy. After another week went by with still no word from her son, she reported the family missing to the Prince George RCMP. It was now August 26th, and no one had seen or heard from the Jack family in just over three weeks. The time factor was a major obstacle for police. Witness reports are notoriously unreliable. And after this much time, it would be even harder to nail down a timeline or to find anyone at the pub on August 1st who remembered Ronnie talking to a stranger, let alone what that person looked like or was wearing. Could Laureen really be certain that she'd seen that truck on August 1st and not some other night? The next problem was that the employment story just didn't make sense. Logging camps didn't have daycares. They were rough and tumble places that, 
weren't suitable for children. Several theories have circulated over the years. The theory that the police floated when the family first went missing was that they were involved in an accident. The theory was that the vehicle was hidden in dense bush off the side of a road. The problem was the area had been thoroughly searched and the unidentified driver, the man who offered them the job, would also likely have been reported missing by his family or at least his employer. But no reports ever came in. The second theory was that the job offer was real, but it wasn't legal and something went wrong and the family was killed. A third theory was that Ronnie owed money for drugs or was mixed up in a drug deal that went bad and his whole family was killed as a result. Yet another darker theory is that the kids were the target all along. The parents were quickly and quietly subdued and killed, then the kids were trafficked for sex. Marlene Jack didn't hear that a sister and her family was missing until over a month after they were last seen. Here's Marlene. Well, my auntie Laura phoned me. She asked me if I'd seen Doreen and Ronnie around, and I said, no, no, I haven't, because I used to live in Maple Ridge at the time, and I used to come downtown Vancouver every week. So she asked if I saw them down here in Vancouver, and then I said, no, I haven't seen them. She goes, well, no, that's the thing, though, because she's missing. And I said, missing? What do you mean, missing? And she's like, August 1st was the last time everybody saw them. And then uh, she said, you should go and look for them in Vancouver. So I looked for a week, didn't see them. And I phoned her back, and I said, no, they're not down here. I've been going every day. How long before they went missing had you spoken to her last I spoke to her a month before, I think a couple of weeks before. Right. And was she okay? And yeah, she was fine. We were talking about, like, what we remembered when we were growing up, all the stupid things we did. Like, um, when she first started smoking, when she teach me how. Well, we were talking about stuff like that. Mm-hmm. When she learned how to drive, things like that. Small things that made us laugh, right? In that last conversation between Ronnie and his mother Mabel, shortly before they left for the supposed logging camp, he told her, if I don't come back, come look for me. Mabel believed Ronnie had known more about the job than he had told her. She organised bingo games to raise money so that she and her other sons could search for their family. There was no outside support searching for them, she said, just the family. Marlene searched for the Jacks in Vancouver, and Mabel searched for them in the Prince George area. No one believed that their disappearance was intentional. They'd left everything behind in their Strathcona Avenue home and taken only enough clothing for two weeks. In February 1990, six months after the Jacks went missing, a $2,000 reward was offered for any information leading to their whereabouts. Mabel Jack put up posters around Prince George and Burns Lake But despite these efforts, the case went cold until 1992, when Crime Stoppers teamed up with CKPG-TV to produce a reenactment of their disappearance. Even though the video ran on television for more than six months, it failed to move the investigation forward. In the early years after her sister went missing, Marlene says that she was told by the RCMP that if she went to the media, they would not talk to her about their investigation. 
She believed them, and for a long time she stayed silent. It didn't seem to make any difference, she says, as the RCMP were never forthcoming with information. Tired of being stonewalled by the RCMP, Marlene was determined to get some answers. Over the years, she's hassled police, taken her story to the media, and started a Facebook group called Missing Jack Family out of Prince George, which at the present time has over 3,500 followers. I have to phone and keep leaving messages before they phone me back. You know, and I have to get really mad at them because they're not calling me or telling me anything. They're trying to get the EPANA to look after this, but EPANA is looking after the Highway of Tears. And my sister's case doesn't fit the criteria for the Highway of Tears. I've been told that numerous times. So basically, there is nobody investigating right now. They say they are, but always when I ask, it's put on the back burner. So there is nobody investigating my sister's case. When we did our search in August, a couple years back, after the search was done, a month after, the RCMP that was investigating at the time phoned me and told me, okay, Marlene, now you need to drop it. You need to stop phoning. You need to stop investigating. You just got to let it go. Yeah, this is what the cop told me. And not only that, they also told me if I spoke to media or any organization like that, they're going to stop telling me anything. I'm doing this to find my sister. I want my sister home where she belongs. And they're not speaking up. They're not doing anything. Who else is going to do this? I want my family home. The search that Marlene is referring to happened at the end of August 2019. After receiving a credible tip about where the Jack family may be buried, the RCMP brought in ground-penetrating radar and excavated a section of property near Vanderhoof. A few years ago, I was lucky to inherit some beautiful pieces of antique jewellery from my grandmother. But the gold is old and thin, and the rings are out of style. Erin Haken, a Vancouver jewellery designer and goldsmith, has convinced me to take them out of the safety deposit box. Erin will work with me at her Vancouver studio to create a one-off design that I'll be proud to wear every day, and that will honour my nana. Go to erinhaken.com, that's E-R-I-N-H-A-K-I-N.com, and receive 15% off your order when you use the code COLDCASE. Marlene's first childhood memory is of a time when she was three. Laureen was two and Doreen was six. Her mother, Katie Paul, told the three little girls to hide under the stairs. Marlene remembers screaming and loud voices and then their dad coming to get them. Shortly after that, their mother left and moved to Quinell. In 1970, Doreen, Marlene and Laureen were sent off to Lejac Residential School at Fraser Lake. At Lejac, the three little girls were placed in different parts of the school and forbidden to speak to each other. If they talked to each other, the nuns would grab them by the ears and pull them apart. While residential school was horrific, so were their visits home. Their father, Charlie Jack, frequently drank and beat the girls. Marlene remembers men coming to the house trying to sexually assault them and her father either being away from the house or too drunk to do anything about it. As the elder sister, Doreen took the brunt of the abuse, 
as she would try to protect her younger siblings. On one of their summertime visits home from residential school, their dad took out his gun, threatened to shoot them, then fired into the floor. As the girls fled out the back door, another bullet hit the doorframe. They stayed outside in the cold without their shoes or jackets until their father sobered up and let them back in the house. Despite everything they went through during their violent childhood and later in residential school and foster care, Doreen remained a friendly, happy person with a great sense of humour. Tell me about Doreen. Like, what was she like? What I remember from her, she was friendly, always happy, joking about a lot of stuff. She always cheered people up. She's gone through a lot because our mom never watched us, so she was more like a mother figure to us younger sisters. Tried to protect us a lot of times, and she was always taking care of everybody. You must really miss her. Yeah, I do. I always think about her, like on holidays, her birthday, Mother's Day especially, because I always talk to her on Mother's Day. You said that she was a mother figure to you. She must have really loved being a mother to her own boys, did she? Yeah, she did. She loved Russell and Ryan with all her heart. She always wanted to make sure that they were taken care of. The Lejac Residential School closed in 1976. By then, Marlene was 10 and Lorraine 9, and they were placed in a federally funded group home in Prince George. Doreen, who was 13, was sent to Prince George College, a Catholic-run high school where Indigenous students lived on site. Marlene says that when Doreen was 17, she was raped by another student and became pregnant. Doreen got pregnant at uh, Prince George College. Her pregnancy is a result of a rape. And did she know who it was? She knew who it was. She named him. So when she said who the father was, the father of the child, his sisters and her friends ganged up on me and Doreen, beat us both up, and tried to get Doreen to miscarry her baby by kicking her in the stomach. So he knew he didn't want to be named the father, and he called Doreen a slut. Did she go to the police? In a racist town, no. Pretty much Doreen was looking for it. After Russell was born in 1980, Doreen and Marlene left Prince George and returned to their father's house in Southside. They attended Grassy Plains School, an hour's bus ride each way. Their father had stopped drinking, but he had a new wife and more children, and the girls didn't get on with their stepmother. After their father died from cancer, Marlene and Doreen, with Russell, hitchhiked to Quinell to search for their mother. They found her living in a motel, but the reunion did not go well. When we found our mom finally, um, she looked at us and, and said, uh, I got rid of you fucking bitches a long time ago. What makes you think I want something to do with you now? So my, my sister was very upset. Uh, and oh, Russell oh. was with us because we didn't have anything to eat or drink. And Doreen said, okay, well, I'm going to go back to Prince George and hitchhike back with Russell. 
And I said I wanted to stay. I had a little bit of money. I think it was, I don't know, seven bucks or something. So I gave it to Doreen and I said, here, get yourself something to drink and, and baby boy too. So she took the money and um, I walked with her as far as I could. And then she caught a ride and then I went back into town and went to my mom's house. Marlene decided to stay in Quenelle, but Doreen was devastated and hitchhiked back to Prince George with Russell. She reconnected with Ronnie, who was one of five boys, and she and Russell went to live with Ronnie's family in South Bank. Ryan was born in 1985. Marge Skin is Ronnie's first cousin and has lived in Prince George since 1969. I know Ronnie since she was a little guy. We grew up together in Grassy Plains. Our reservations are pretty close. Ronnie and Doreen, they used to live there. They both went to residential school in the Jack. We were all separated when we were young. When I moved to Prince George, I got reconnected with Ronnie. We lived in town here. I'd see their house when I'd walk down the hill pushing my stroller. I had three children. He used to wait for me at the door or the window, come out and yell at me, come on over for coffee. So I used to go over there and have coffee with them before I went downtown to do my business. And were they pretty happy? They're both happy. They're Johnny wanted to work. I mean, that's how did he got uh, lured away from his home. He wanted to work and make a living for his children. I just miss them so much. My brothers and I, we sit and talk about it all the time. Remember him. Remember what a nice guy Ronnie was. He was the best one out of the whole family. Marlene was never able to reconcile with her mother. After she left Quenelle, she ended up in Vancouver's downtown east side. She'd lost contact with her family, and later she found out that they thought she was dead. It was only after a chance encounter with an auntie in Vancouver in 1986 that she was able to reconnect with Doreen, who was now back in Prince George with Ronnie and the two boys. The sisters would talk on the phone for hours. There was very little in the media about the missing family until January 28, 1996, when police got their first real lead. Constable Judy Thomas was now in charge of the investigation, the same Mountie who would bring down Judge David Ramsey just a few years later. And after hours, RCMP operator at Prince George received a three-second call that said, The Jack family are buried at the south end of something ranch. The tape was garbled and the name of the ranch was almost inaudible. It could have been Gordy's, Cordy's or Corey's. Scientists at the University of British Columbia attempted to analyse the tape syllable by syllable but failed to isolate the name of the ranch. Through a search warrant issued for BC Tells Records, Police discovered the call had been placed from a home in Stony Creek, southwest of Vanderhoof. When they investigated, they found out that there had been a party there that had carried on into the early morning hours of Sunday, January 28th. The caller was never identified, but police records show that 45 minutes after the call was placed, police had been called to the house following a noise complaint made by a neighbour. At the time, though, the officers who arrived at the house had been completely unaware of a possible connection 
to the Jack's disappearance. None of the people at the party had come up in past investigations. They were not considered suspects in the case. In 1999, on the 10-year anniversary of the Jack's disappearance, serious crimes investigators were brought in from Vancouver to lend fresh eyes to the case, comb through more than 700-odd tips and release posters throughout BC and parts of Alberta in an attempt to get new leads. Twenty years went by, and then the Jack family was once again back in the news. At the end of August 2019, 30 years after the Jacks went missing, police excavated a section of property south of Vanderhoof near the Highway of Tears. But after searching the area with ground-penetrating radar and heavy equipment for three days, no signs of the family were ever found. Sergeant Aaron Whitehouse, in charge of the Serious Crimes Unit in Prince George, says the Jack family is the largest paper case file they have in the city. The Jack family, I've got to tell you, just intrigues me. It intrigues us too. I think it is the only missing persons case of an entire family that is unsolved in Canadian history. It is a real mystery. It certainly is the largest uh, paper file that we have Ooh. at Prince George City. I, I can't remember how many boxes it is, but it's something like 60 boxes of, oh. uh, of banker boxes of, of investigative uh, product. And yeah, it's been worked on since 1989, I guess. So it's still an active investigation, and you know we're engaged in it on a ongoing basis. I wouldn't say on a on a routine basis, but we still have uh, a primary investigator assigned to it. And is that you? Uh, no, it's not mm-hmm. me. It's one of the members on my unit here. We do get periodically tips that come in on the investigation, and I will say that with the Jack family file, there are a lot of tips that come in on that file just because people generally want to help because it is it's tragic how have you classified the file we've investigated it as a homicide it will still be classified like technically as a missing person but it's been handled as a as a homicide are you able to tell me if there ever has been a suspect identified yes we have numerous suspects but again when i say suspects like you have to understand that i'm using the terminology there that it doesn't take much to be a suspect. So yes, for sure, on the Jack family file, um, we've had at least one suspect. And does this whole theory about them going for a job hold up at all? Is it possible? Yeah, it's possible. You know, it's one of these files where we, you know, as a group, you know, we dig into, and I mean, there's been, you know, many investigators that have touched this file over the years. It's one of these things where you, you get into it and you, you want to solve it. Yeah. That's what we do for a living. You know, police officers get quite excited about that. While Marlene says the RCMP have told her that she has to stop calling them and let it go, she has no intention of letting anything go. She wants to find out what happened to her family and, if possible, to bring them home for burial. She believes that Doreen and Ronnie were murdered the night they went missing, but there's a chance that her nephews are still alive. Marlene says she gave up asking the RCMP to do age progression photos of the family. Through Facebook, she connected with Samantha Steinberg, a forensic artist in the United States. The RCMP then used Steinberg's drawings to create a billboard that went up for two weeks 
in the summer of 2020 on Highway 97, just before the intersection of Highway 16, the Highway of Tears. Unfortunately, it didn't result in any new leads. Visit evelazarus.com and buy Eve a coffee if you're enjoying Cold Case Canada. Before you go, I wanted to tell you about a great deal from my publisher, Arsenal Pulp Press. They're offering 20% off to listeners of Cold Case Canada. This includes my new book, Cold Case BC, Cold Case Vancouver, Vancouver Exposed and Murder by Milkshake. You can also pick up any of Aaron Chapman's fabulous books, including his latest, Vancouver Vice, The Last Gang in Town and Vancouver After Dark. Just go to arsenalpulp.com and use the promo code COLDCASE at checkout. That's one word, COLDCASE, and get 20% off these books and other great titles. If you have any information about the Jack family's disappearance, please contact the Prince George RCMP at 250-561-3300. Or if you would rather remain anonymous, Contact Crime Stoppers at 1 800 222 8477 or go onto their website, solvecrime.ca. Thanks so much for listening. If you would like more information on this or other cases, please go to my website, evelazarus.com, or join us on the Facebook group page, Cold Case Canada. Now, it's my pleasure to leave you with this trailer from Mike Brown at the Dark Poutine Podcast. Oh, Canada, a vast, idyllic land filled with beavers, loons, lumberjacks, and polite, friendly folks. We have those things for sure, but there's a darker side to the Great White North, full of mystery, crime, the paranormal, and dark history. Join me, Mike Brown, and co-host Matthew Stockton every Monday for the Dark Poutine Podcast as we tell dark stories from north of the 49th parallel with the Ottawa game covering more international cases. You can listen to Dark Poutine for free wherever you find your favorite podcasts.